Alice in Disguise, but that's okay. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> hey, hello. You're in front of me. Yes, we are in person. I'm sorry that we didn't have a episode last week. I was lost in Vegas. Yes, I went to Vegas with Zach on a business trip, and we were going to record because I came here beforehand, but it was too much. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling was too much. That was a long trip. That was a long haul. Yes, but now I'm here, and we're going to do something different-ish. So we kind of went down a rabbit hole. We were going to do one house, and then the one house wasn't really that interesting, but it tied into a very interesting other house. And so we just kind of followed the rabbit and right landed at Sharon Tate. Tate. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I feel like everybody has kind of heard of the story, but it's still an interesting like story in case. I think that we'll be adding some new things that maybe people didn't know mm-hmm. and um, just some haunting elements. Yeah, this one definitely is a little bit more descriptive. So just as a listener warning, we are going to get into some pretty grimy details dealing with murder and also suicide. Yeah. So just listen with caution. Um, I think that what we'll do is we have to talk about Jean Harlow and Paul Byrne first. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I'll just kind of give you guys the short little lowdown that I have about their supposed haunting, and then you can kind of go into the actual history, mm-hmm. and then we'll kind of shift into Sharon. Yeah, Jean. the Jean Harlow house was originally the one that we were going to be covering. And it has a very interesting history, and I think that like that's going to be the most interesting part, because even though they say it's haunted, um, <laughs> besides this one story... Uh, there's really nothing like no evidence no like i don't think you even take a tour i think it's actually somebody's house Mm -hmm. so like there's there's nothing else except for some brief synopsis so that's why we kind of mash these two together but both of these are in california and you said they were what like four minutes apart yeah i've google mapped it and they're about four a four minute drive apart so they were very close so yeah tell me about it um, so the Burn Harlow house was, you know, owned by Paul Byrne, I think. Um, I didn't see who exactly moved into who, um, but it was bought in the 1960s by Jay Sebring and he was dating Sharon Tate at the time. And she's the one that kind of started the whole, I think like really churned the rumor that this place is haunted. Mm-hmm. I've seen that in brief little paragraphs that former owners and tenants have said that it is haunted by Paul Byrne and Jean Harlow, but there's nothing specific like disembodied voices, footsteps, nothing really exciting. Um, But Sharon Tate gave an actual interview saying that she was staying in Harlow's bedroom which supposedly was the site of Byrne's death. I can't confirm that. That's just something that's in all the stories. And she didn't know that in some some of the of stories of the interview that I saw. It was that she wasn't aware. Mm. That's where he died. And then one night, Byrne's ghost apparently appeared to her in the room. She said he ignored her and wandered around the room and seemed to be searching for something. And... 
Sharon Tate was quoted as saying, I saw this creepy little man. He looked like all the descriptions I'd ever read about Paul Byrne. Tate fled the room and began to go downstairs when she saw an apparition with the appearance of her boyfriend at the time, uh, Sebring, tied to the railing of the staircase. The apparition that resembled him had its throat slit and appeared to be struggling to stay alive as it bled to death. That's gruesome. That is awful. Like, very traumatic to be, like, in a strange place that's, like, not usually your home. And then you wake up to a ghost kind of just fucking milling about your room. (laughs) And then you go and see your boyfriend basically horrifically murdered. And people say that this wasn't actually a spirit. This was, like, some sort of premonition that Sharon Tate had. That's, like, what they speculate is that Sharon Tate was actually, like getting a hint of like foreshadowing of what was to come for her mm-hmm. life. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. You know, it could have just been a nightmare. Um, people yeah. have horrible nightmares all the time, especially about the people that you love. So, uh, but yeah, that's the only specific story about the Jean Harlow house. That is like, this place is haunted. Like she saw Paul Byrne and he doesn't seem like he was the one that was really, antagonizing no and i wouldn't say that like he when i saw pictures of him this is like way before our time but like when i saw pictures of him i would not describe him as a creepy little man he looked like a movie producer like yeah i mean and i think what i read also while i was doing research was family members like came forward and stated like they didn't think that she actually said that yeah I think that she maybe saw something, mm-hmm. but I don't. Th- I think that people, of course, you know, with the media and everything, they're gonna take your word and embellish and spin it to yeah. make a, a good read. So, still very interesting. Um, and like I said, that's the only like specific encounter that I could find. Other people were just very vague of like, oh yeah, this house is haunted, but mm-hmm. why? I think it's just because some tragic things happen there and that's kind of given it the reputation of especially with Sharon staying there mm-hmm. it's given the reputation that's haunted and cursed so does one death warrant a curse I mean it depends on how he died and you're going to tell us about it I can I can tell you about it the original owners were actress Jean Harlow and then her husband movie producer Paul Byrne And they were only married for two months. But then on September 5th, 1932, so this is like way back. Yeah. Paul Byrne was found dead with a single gunshot wound to the head and a 38 caliber revolver in his hand. Mm. The weird thing was that when his body was discovered by the staff for the house. Right. Instead of calling the police, they called MGM. Yeah. Which is where the studio where he worked. Right. His death was ultimately ruled a suicide by police, but there is like strong speculation by a lot of people, including some of his colleagues that were in the film industry, that he was actually murdered and it was covered up by the studio. Yeah. I want, I, it makes me wonder how many like instances, like even today, that happens. Mm-hmm. Like something happens with like, and we get, we get the news pretty like automatically now. 
but how much delay there actually is Mm -hmm. and how many people like call like their agent and stuff before they call any sort of authority. Like how do we need to handle this? Right. Exactly. Not like handle it like a normal person. Exactly. But then in 1963, the house was sold to J.C. Bring, who a year later began dating Sharon Tate. And even though the couple eventually split, they remained really good friends until both of their deaths. So that kind of leads into the Celo Drive house. Because while, while Sharon's husband was out of town, she had friends staying with her because she was eight and a half months pregnant. And that's when all that terrible stuff happened. Right. And even though they had broken up, her and Jay were still really good friends and very mm-hmm. close. I think there's some speculation that they were still involved. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that brings us, kind of bleeds, which is the wrong word to use, <laughs> into um, the ghost of Sharon Tate, which again is... Is it Celio or Cielo? I think it's Celio. Oh, I've just been saying Celio. I, th- I don't know. Uh, Drive, which I don't think is the original house. I think that it was either renovated or, or something when David Omen bought it. Mm-hmm. But f- this place has kind of been talked about for a while as being haunted. Something's there. And generally, it is Sharon. I don't know why her and not everybody else that, but I guess because she, she was pregnant and it was very traumatic to read that a young pregnant starlet was. I mean, when you read the facts of the whole case, every single one of those individuals died traumatically. Yeah. There was not a single person that died a pleasant death in that house that night. Yeah. Um... So with all of that, which Jennifer will get into more, we kind of shift into her haunting, which tenants, visitors, and others say that electrical systems go haywire. It's a very heavy energy. There's like a palpable darkness when you walk in. People get like sick and nauseous and dizzy. People have reported a shadow figure, disembodied voices, Trent Resner of Nine Inch Nails mm-hmm. rented it and he said I walked in the place at night and everything was dark and I was like holy Jesus that's where it happened uh, I jumped a mile at every sound even if it was an owl I woke up in the middle of the night and there was a coyote looking at me in the window I thought I'm not gonna make it he said that the, the energy was just palpable and constantly putting him on edge. But like how much is that how much of that is like yeah. actual energy or like psychological? Yeah, exactly. Like you're going into a house where you know things have happened and you're kind of psyching yourself out, I feel like. Like when you go into a haunted house, you have that adrenaline pumping because you know what's going to happen in there. Right. Not because the energy is weird in there. Right, exactly. So, I think that some people kind of go with that preconceived notion um, that they're going to experience something, which is why I like to like, if we ever go like on a haunted tour or something and we go to like places that are inside and people are like, Oh, people have experienced this and this and this. I always like to go in with the mindset that I'm not going to experience anything Mm -hmm. 
because that kind of just gives me like a baseline of if I do experience something, I wasn't like looking. I wasn't intentionally trying to find something to freak me out. I really appreciated we went on a ghost tour in Savannah one time where we went upstairs on the Blue River Brewing Company, Mm -hmm. which is like if you watch the Ghost Adventures episode of that building, that's where everything happened. But they didn't tell us that beforehand. Mm -hmm. A lot of people talk about, um, or is it Moon River? I don't know. I want to go there because I've actually never taken a tour of that place. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it might be the Blue River. But a lot of people talk about the bathrooms Mm-hmm. And like they'll, you'll go into the restaurant, restroom, restaurant, and they'll tell you about the bathrooms, and then they'll be like, "Okay, well, we're gonna go upstairs now." And we went upstairs, but they didn't tell us anything. They were like, "Okay, just okay. like walk around carefully because it's like open construction." But then we all gathered back, and then they told us everything that had happened. So you don't really know like where things happened until you go in. Yeah. And what was wild was like, in that instance. There was some crazy energy there, and it yeah. was where things did happen. Yeah, which I think is great. I think that, yeah, that's just the best way to do it is not go in with any sort of, like, preconceived notion in your head, mm-hmm. um, which is hard for a place that has reportedly been dubbed the Mount Everest of haunted houses and Disneyland for the dead, which is just in bad taste anyway, but, like... <laughs> When you dub things like that, it kind of just... I mean, I guess I'll need to know, like, the evidence and stuff, like, the happenings beforehand. But when you say, like, Disneyland of the Dead, I'm expecting, like, multiple entities and poltergeists and a conjuring, if you will. Yeah, which, I mean, honestly, with what I saw found, uh, I don't know if you can kind of, like, back that up. (laughs) um apparently this is why i said i don't know if it is exactly if the house was taken down completely or if he just renovated it Mm -hmm. i know he changed the name but because it says during the construction uh workmen reported strange things such as footsteps from nowhere temperature changes in cold spots one workman experienced a cold blast of air and left the job for six weeks (laughs) like was totally freaked out um because of a chill of air i mean maybe they just thought you were hot you're working hard on the house so (laughs) cool down you know oh here's a little breeze i would have been appreciative would you have been appreciative i mean if it was in florida yes (laughs) because there's no (laughs) there's hardly any wind in the summer and so you know come on just fan me a little bit a little bit more on the back of the neck please (laughs) Let me just stand in front of you. <laughs> Don't touch me. <laughs> um, and then visitors, of course, have have seen the apparitions and the and the voices. I've heard, they've heard the voices. And then in this article, it said some of them have been unaware of the proper property's significance, which I would say I find hard to believe. But then, like we were talking about last night. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and had people who were much older than me have no idea about who anybody was. Well, and I think if you, before we did this research, if you'd asked me the address for the house, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. Right. And if you had have asked me to like point out the house to you, showing me pictures, I also would not have been able to tell you. Very true. 
So um, I think even though the story was big, the extra location kind of got lost. Yeah. So uh, David is mostly the guy that people interview and talk about because, I, I mean, I guess he lived in the house afterwards the longest, but I'm not sure. Or he's just like the most outspoken. There's always one. Yeah. He has seen the ghost of a man inside the house standing in his bedroom. He said he didn't recognize the man until later seeing a picture and and realized that it was actually Jay Sebring. Mm -hmm. And he said he also heard footsteps come into the bedroom and felt someone sit on the bed. But when he opened his eyes, no one was there. They did have ghost hunters come in as well as ghost adventures. And that's kind of where I got most of my evidence. Um, They did like a whole investigation. It was a very early TAPS episode. It was when they still had this third guy that I can't even remember his name. And and he, they did an EMF. Most of the episode concentrated on this EMF session where they were getting like they were asking questions and telling the thing to pass in front of the EMF re- reader to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. And they were getting consistent answers from an supposed an, an intelligent spirit. <laughs> However, I encourage some people to go back to this episode and I'll have it listed in the show notes, which episode it is. Um, and to watch them each hold this EMF reader because they all, I'm not accusing ghost hunters or taps of like, falsifying evidence or anything but they all hold the emf reader the same way and their thumb is like right in line with like the end of the device like kind of like Mm. long ways and it just seems convenient to me that they could easily kind of like push something did they have to be holding it like could they have set it down and something that's what i'm saying is like it would be more compelling if you had set it down and Mm -hmm. nobody was touching it but every time they got like answers, somebody was like holding it. Well, and we did see how reliable those EMF readers are. Yeah, on a ghost tour. tour, they're very not. They're not. <laughs> um, but you know, this was like one of the early episodes of Ghost Hunters, so I feel like that was kind of like the main thing that people used for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think that like in this episode, they didn't even have the spirit box. Wow, it was just like EMF um, and the recorders but this is after the construction i think so i think so um yeah it had to be because david was there and he was like hey yeah i guess that's true but they also got some evps i don't like that yeah, um, and there's another one, if you keep going. Are you angry about what happened? Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. So, Ghost Hunters got those two EVPs, which I'll post the YouTube video. It starts at 541, um, where they basically have this woman in distress mm-hmm. and if you watch the whole episode you can tell where they're sitting during during the actual investigation which i like um that they don't put like evps in the middle like ghost adventure does they they do the whole thing 
and then they show you all the evidence at the end, which I think is just helpful, especially for me, who is like kind of like bouncing through things to mm-hmm. get content. But during the actual investigation, it's just them two, and the room is totally quiet. Like it's not like they they're like, oh, what's that? They maybe hear like a dog or a coyote or something. It's a totally quiet room and they kind of like, they sit there for a while and they think that they don't get anything Mm -hmm. because they have the EVP and they're like, "Mm," like they don't hear any footsteps or anything. So it's kind of just like, okay, well we did this EVP and then they get the evidence later and it's very like, it's horrific. Yeah. It puts a pit in your stomach for sure. Because it sounds like a woman who's like in distress and like screaming and they, they attribute that to Sharon Tate. Um, so I thought that was compelling. Those are kind of like the most like jarring EVPs mm-hmm. I've listened to in a long time. So, yeah. <laughs> wild. Very wild. Um, in Ghost Adventures, they also get some evidence. I will also put the episode. I think that Sharon, the Sharon Tate ghost episode is pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when this episode aired and I watched it pretty soon after it aired but there was a doctor in paranormal sciences I don't know exactly where did you get that degree I know which college has that major his name was Barry Taft and he right off the bat told Zach and Nick that he would not go back there because of the geometric electronic fields that surround the property it makes like for really bad negative energy and it made him sick and he I think at one point kind of alludes that some some sort of energy followed him home it made him sick afterwards which of course you tell this to Nick and Zach they're obviously going to then eat it up and throw it up as yes well. and have it their own very sick which, um, throughout this episode, they do. Nick is, like, the most affected in this episode. I think it's, like, one of the last episodes, like, seasons that he was on. But he's very affected by it. Very emotional. Very sick. Has to go outside a few times. Uh, he gets scratched, which you can see in 26 minutes and 55 seconds in. Nick does get scratched across the chest. Um, I'll try to find a still and put that on our Instagram. But the ghost hunters like never experienced anything. Like, nothing physical. They weren't sick. No, nothing like that. They've heard mostly like footsteps, bangs, um, that sort of thing. David, when he's showing Zach Bagans around, kind of says that he, there's a whole bunch of figurines on top of this fish tank. Mm-hmm. And he says like they're regularly knocked over by themselves. And they kind of do like a they're like setting up the camera just to see what happens. And they're there. He says like they're there for like three to five minutes and nothing really happens. So they're about to like turn off the camera. And then a figurine just kind of like tips over by itself and falls. Um, and nobody's beside the fish tank. And they even try to like debunk it. And they set the figure back up. And then they have David j- jump close mm-hmm. to the fish tank. Nothing moves. I think it's kind of ironic that the figure that fell was Beetlejuice. <laughs> I was going to ask what the figure was. Yeah, it was a figurine of Beetlejuice, which kind of goes with the creepy theme um, and ghosts and 
How oh, do you that's have a figurine of that? I had a whole collection of, of all kinds of different figurines. Um, and then it, it also happens again later in the episode. They have like just a static cam set up there and a figurine falls again. Is it the same figurine? Different. Maybe they're just not a fan of figurines. Maybe they just don't like your creepy figurines. Yeah. Put up plants instead. It's much more right. zen. Right. Um, and then, interestingly, in the same living room that Ghost Hunters gets that EVP, mm-hmm. they're interviewing an amateur investigator on Ghost Adventures, and it's like about nine minutes in, and they had an EVP of a sigh when they went and investigated in that same area in 2012. Mm. Um, so I'm guessing that area is very active if they're getting EVPs from there. And you said that was in the living room? Yes. In, like, the living, sitting area. I also saw on Ghost Adventures that there's a raw mound of, like, foothills earth in the basement. Like, it's part of the mountain that, like, just hasn't been smoothed over and put concrete on. And that, like, that could be responsible for some negative energy because it's also apparently built on an indigenous burial ground. Which... Is always the case somehow, but that could also be a reason why all this happened was what the the illusion was like, you know, have they checked the rock for radon? Right. Like, <laughs> have they checked it for quartz? Haunted quartz. <laughs> Maybe they just need to open that up, put in a moon roof. Yeah. And then, you know, put some water on top. Um <laughs> They also interviewed a woman who claimed to see the ghost of Sharon Tate while staying there. She said that she saw a full-body apparition of a woman who was pregnant, bleeding, walking down the driveway, and that it scared her so much that she left. And peed. And, I don't know, cried, because that would traumatize me. But then she said that she went back during the day to visit David, because her and her partner were friends with him, I guess. And every time she would go and he would kind of like start talking about like the experiences or trying to like connect with the spirits. Like she would feel very nauseous and very like sick and have to leave, which I mean, if you saw a full body apparition of a woman bleeding and then you went back and he was like, let's try to connect with them. I would feel sick too. And want to leave. leave. Yes. Let's not. Yeah. Let's go get tacos instead. Exactly. Let's just like leave them alone. Maybe (laughs) just leave them. Um, and then some other evidence, there's a lot of orb and ball of light activity in this Mm -hmm. episode towards the end when Nick is being very affected by everything. You see a lot of orbs flying. Does it look like orbs or does it look like dust? They do. Some of them do look like orbs. Some of them, they say, this is not dust and this is not a bug. And it's kind of like, I kind of debatable. Is it? Um, like one of the first instances is like. 23 minutes in, 51 seconds. And that one kind of just, I was like, meh, it could be. They call them light anomalies. They don't call them orbs in this episode. But then there's some, like, in the last four to six minutes of the episode, which more kind of, like, they're not as, like, bright, mm-hmm. light-y. They're more kind of just, like, ripples, mm. which are more compelling to me, I think. Because, like, a flutter... And like a night vision camera of a moth can be very bright and very mm-hmm. orby. But when it's kind of just like a 
slight like a little bit of distortion yeah Yeah. disturbance in in the atmosphere or energy that kind of is more telling to me and that does happen towards the end and then they do get an evp of uh some weird singing talking after a door slams um 21 minutes and 43 seconds in but those are kind of like the key evidences it's mostly a lot of them having bad vibes and feeling affected um this episode came at the prime era of like nick having an awakening of that he is a sensitive and zach bagan's really banking on possession instances so take that episode with what you can i am sorry to say to people that i did not get the opportunity to go to the museum while i was in las vegas next time for sure but but yeah you know you know how he is but yeah that's all the evidence i have for you that's interesting i had a thought you had mentioned that doctor saying that something followed him home yeah right wouldn't it be interesting if because Zach and Nick and Aaron go to all these places. Yeah. How do they know that one ghost isn't following them? From place to place? From place to place, if something can follow you home. That's very interesting, yeah. And I think that they've talked about it in episodes before. I know that, like, right before Nick left, they went to one house. And I know that some of you who listen to our podcast have seen as much Ghost Adventures as we have. <laughs> And I think that you guys probably know better than me the episode I'm talking about. But there is an episode where Nick, it's like one of the last episodes he's in. He legitimately gets freaked out because he legitimately is like, something followed me home. And he he goes to like see a priest. Yes. And that's like his first like cleansing thing that he does because like it really affected him Mm -hmm. it really like fucked him up (laughs) and so I can't remember what episode that is um but yeah I mean I think that like how would they know I I guess you don't like is there a a ghost rule of thumb like rule of courtesy like oh there's ghosts in this house so I'm not going to go yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna follow them into this one I'll just wait at home for them I don't know I I think that like I think that Nick claims to combat it with like doing cleanses regularly so things don't follow him. Um, with Zach, he has that whole fucking museum and who who knows? He he yells at ghosts and he like is very combative with spirits, so there could be a plethora like he could have an entourage of of things following him. Well, I can tell you about it when we get back from our break. Yeah, let's take a quick break and then we'll delve into the awfulness. <laughs> Hi, I'm Marty and I'm Effie and we would love you to come and join us on our podcast Mums, Mysteries and Murder. Each month we take turns telling you true crime stories and mysteries from our places of birth, Australia and Scotland. I'm covering Australia. What's your favourite thing about Australia, Marty? It would have to be the weather and the meat pies. The meat pies are strong in Australia. (laughs) The meat pie game is good. (laughs) <laughs> really? Oh. And uh, I'm covering Scotland. What's your favourite thing about Scotland? And macaroni pies and haggis. Haggis balls. Macaroni. <laughs> macaroni should not be in a pie. Have you tasted one though? No, I don't need to. It's like Mars bars. It's amazing. <laughs> 
If you love podcasts that are on point, heavily researched and full of gruesome details, that's probably not us. But if you do love a bit of true crime chat, Netflix recommendations and random banter, we do talk about last meals a lot, don't we? Yeah, but it's a good topic. Macaroni pie for the last meal. Yes. (laughs) Meat pie. Then come join us where you get your podcasts and we would love it if you would subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. Come and follow us on Instagram at Mums, Mysteries and Murder. Bye. Bye. We're back. We're back. Were you looking at lunch? I was. <laughs> looking for something to deliver. Um, regardless. <laughs> let's not talk about lunch. Let's talk about murder. Ugh, perfect. Ready to get my appetite going. <laughs> I don't know if you'll want to eat after this. Uh, like I said before, this is like very graphic, so ye be warned. The original house was designed by Arthur Hawes in 1942 and completed in 1944 for French actress Michelle Morgan. Mm. So it dates back kind of far. Yeah. 1942, though, is I feel like early when you consider it being on Indian burial ground. True. Um... In February 1969, Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, began renting the house from Alto Belli. Rudolph Alto Belli was a music and film industry talent manager, Mm. and he bought the house for $86,000 in the 1960s, and he rented it to, like, many stars, like Clark Gable. There was a couple other listed. I only recognize Clark Gable, though. (laughs) Um, so it was like a common thing, I guess, to rent out this home. Yeah. So on the night of August 8th, 1969, Tex Watson took Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkel to the Celio house. And then Tex claimed that Charles Manson had instructed him to go to the house and, quote, totally destroy everyone in it. Ugh. And to do it as gruesome as you can. Oh, my God. He also then told the women to do as Tex instructed them to. So the occupants of the house at the time that that evening were Sharon Tate, who was eight eight and a half months pregnant, her friend and former partner, Jay Sebring, Roman's friend, and I don't even know how to say his first name. I'm probably going to mispronounce his last name. Uh, Frakowski, mm-hmm. and then Frakowski's girlfriend was Abigail Folger, who was the heiress to the Folger's Coffee Empire. Just Gretchen Wieners, just flash into my mind. The inventor of Toaster Strudel. Honestly, to be an heiress, Toaster Strudel wouldn't be bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> Also on the property were William Gerritsen, the caretaker of the property, and then his friend, Stephen Parent. Roman was, like I mentioned earlier, out of the country. He was in Europe working on a film. Mm. So the Manson group arrived at the property just past midnight on August 9th. Watson climbed a telephone pole near the entrance and cut the line, the phone line, to the house. Mm. And then they decided to avoid anybody seeing them, they were going to walk up the property, like on the side of the hill. Mm. Um, While they were walking up, they saw headlights leaving that belonged to Stephen Parent. Stephen had been visiting William. 
And so Tex told the girls to go hide in the bushes, and he stepped out in front of the car to stop it. He then held a twenty-two at Stephen's head to get him to stop. Stephen mm-hmm. said, you know, please let me go. I won't tell anybody. Essentially begging for his life. Watson then lunged at him with a knife. It went through his hand, and then he shot him four times. Ugh. So he was killed in his car. Just awful, like... <sighs> Not even letting somebody just drive away. They didn't. Yeah. He didn't see you. Right. Like, you could have just gone undetected and like no. Yeah. Uh, so he then told the women to help push the car back up the driveway so the car wasn't, you know, sitting there with a body in it. Right. They went around to the back of the house and cut the screen off of the window, while Patricia kept lookout. Watson entered and woke up Frakowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. He kicked him in the head. <sighs> And Frakowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there. And Watson replied, I am the devil and I'm here to do the devil's business. Gross. They then went and gathered everyone into the living room. And Watson tied Sharon and Jay together by their necks and threw it over the beams in the living room. Mm. Jay spoke up and said, you know, she's pregnant. He spoke up to how they were treating her. Yeah. And so he was then shot by Tex, but I guess he wasn't killed Yeah. at that point. He was just shot because Abigail was then taken back to her room where she gave the murderers $70 from her purse. And then after they got that money, Jay was stabbed seven times. Oh, my God. So Frakowski's hands had been tied with a towel, but he freed himself and began struggling with Atkins who then stabbed his legs with a knife. Mm. He fought his way out to the front door onto the porch, but then Watson caught up with him, stroke him, struck him over the head with the gun multiple times, stabbed him repeatedly, and then shot him twice. It's just an amount of overkill. It's just awful. Yeah, like just completely violent. Yeah, just so much violence. Pointlessly. So this obviously was making a lot of noise. Patricia heard, quote, horrifying sounds and then moved towards the house and told Atkins that someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. Now, this is probably, like, this is just what she told mm-hmm. her side of the story. Right. Um, as far as the trial goes, I know that some of them were tried, I don't know if I would say gentler, gentlier, or, like, just lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, More lenient. Yeah, so she, whether this happened or not is up to you to believe her. Right. She could have just been saying it to be like, oh, well, I tried to stop it. Right, to save herself in some sort of way. Yeah. Um, or she could have felt. I just don't understand, like, how you can be a bystander and, like, a lookout to all of that and, like, see what everything has become mm-hmm. and not feel some sort of guilt. But also, they were... In a cult. Yeah. Inside the house, Abigail escaped from Patricia and fled out a bedroom door into the pool area. Patricia pursued her and caught her on the front lawn where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground. Mm. Watson then helped kill her, and in total, she was stabbed 28 times. Oh, my God. Separately, Frakowski struggled across the lawn, but then Watson continued to stab him as well. Mm. Ultimately, he would suffer 51 stab wounds. That's awful. But had also been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of the gun, which ended up bending the barrel and broke off one side of the gun grip. Oh, my God. Inside the house, 
Sharon pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth to her child and offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child. So sad. But Atkins and Watson stabbed Sharon 16 times, Mm. killing her. According to Watson, Manson had told the women to leave a sign, something witchy. (laughs) Right. So for their witchy phrase, they chose to write pig on the front door Mm -hmm. in Sharon's blood. Which is just, like, doesn't make really any sense, but also it's just awful. (laughs) It's just awful. Um, Atkins claims that she did this to copycat the murder scene of Gary Hinman to get another Manson family member out of jail, who was in custody at the time for murder. Mm -hmm. He had written political piggy in Hinman's blood on his wall after stabbing him to death. So that was the awful murders that happened there. Yeah. After that... Uh, Alta Belli moved into the house just three weeks after the murders. I mean, what we talked about, like, I guess, like, after that, you can't really rent this house out. Yeah. Like, nobody's going to rent it from you after a horrific thing happened, so. I don't know if I, like, even then, I don't know if I would move in. Yeah. Uh, he lived there, though, until 1988. Oh, okay. Yeah. During an interview on ABC's show 2020, he said that while living there, he felt, quote, safe, secure, loved, and beauty. After that, the house was then sold to John Prell, who was a real estate investor. Uh, the purchase price was $1.6 in 1989, so that would be equivalent to $3.5 million mm-hmm. in 2021. That's a good return on Altabelli's investment, I guess. Yeah. In 1992, Prell sold the property to Alvin Weintraub. It was another real estate investor. The final resident of the original house was who you said, uh, Trent Reznor, who was a musician of Nine Inch Nails. He rented the house from 1992 and set up a recording studio and classically named it Pig. Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow. He said in an interview, while I was working on Downward Spiral, I was living in the house where Sharon Tate was killed. Then one day I met her sister. It was a random thing, just a brief encounter. And she said, are you exploiting my sister's death by living in her house? Which I can't envision any human being ever saying. Yeah, I don't, like, I feel like that's just like a, why would she say that? And why would you, like, go up to somebody? I wouldn't, you know, that's, he also claimed to find, like, bouquets and, like, shrines and stuff outside the house that he attributed to probably people like paying respect to Sharon Tate. But even after all that time, I don't, I feel like, and you know that somebody's living there and you must have security. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're an artist. So, uh, well, he responded by saying for the first time, the whole thing kind of slapped me in the face. Yeah. I said, no, it's just sort of my own interest in American folklore. Which is not folklore. That is not folklore. (laughs) No. I I do not think that means what you think it means. Right. I'm in this place where a weird part of history occurred. I guess it never really struck me before, but it did then. She lost her sister from a senseless, ignorant situation that I don't want to support. When she was talking to me, I realized for the first time, what if it was my sister? I thought, fuck Charlie Manson. I don't want to be looked at as a guy who supports serial killer bullshit. I went home and cried that night. It made me see there's another side of things, you know? It's one thing to go around with your dick swinging in the wind, acting like it doesn't matter. (laughs) But when you understand the repercussions that are felt, 
that's what sobered me up, realizing that what balances out the appeal of the lawlessness and the lack of morality and that whole thing is the other end of it, the victims who don't deserve that. Which, I mean, like, I guess good for you for realizing that. And I mean, I guess, and I I can see, like, people kind of need that lesson today, like, especially with true crime as being so, like, sensationalized and we're like always getting a new documentary about some horrific crime and you kind of can lose the victims mm-hmm. in all of it um but also like you didn't realize that before you moved in i don't like i just maybe it was such a a time difference because it happened in the 60s and he didn't move in until the 90s yeah i don't know it's just it's hard for me to we are extra empathetic, though. Yeah. So I don't think we could ever be in the place where we're like, I don't understand. Like, I didn't I didn't think about that person that way. Right. Because we're always thinking about right. other people and how they're feeling. Right. Like that's just how our brains work. So I don't think we'll ever be able to, like, relate to him thinking that way. Yeah. But also the fact that he said, realizing that what balances out the appeal of lawlessness and the lack of morality like, there's no appeal there. Yeah, no. This was just straight brutality and right. murder. And violence. And it was for, like, really no reason. No. It was, there was no, like, you know, Charles Manson can talk all the shit he wants about, like, his mission and, like, Helter Skelter and everything. But, like, it really was for, for no reason. Mm-hmm. It was really, really just, like, a tiny, minuscule and meaning like an ego and personality and everything, man, mm-hmm. getting off on like controlling a bunch of young, drugged out hippie people. The worst case of short man syndrome I've ever seen. Exactly. And just like, you know, wielding his power to do awful, awful things. And mm-hmm. there's nothing like admirable or anything like about that. <laughs> and clearly it sobered him up, sobered him up enough because, you know, when he left, he decided he needed to take the front door of the house with him when he moved out and he installed it at nothing studios, his new recording studio in new Orleans. Why did he do that? <laughs> What's the point of taking the door just to have like a reminder of like your epiphany? I mean, <laughs> um, nothing studios was later sold and the fake hit of the building was changed. Good job. The front door that was removed is currently preserved in the possession of Christopher Moore, a New Orleans artist who acquired it from the owner of the building, which is fucking weird and stop preserving these things. Yes. Stop. Stop doing that. (laughs) Stop. It's just like, why do you need to preserve it? There's nothing to preserve. It's not like a piece of history. No. And that, so that was kind of the feeling that I had when I went to the Zach Bagans museum, because it was like, he had the jacket from the night stalker. He had the TV from Charlie Manson. You're putting these people on a, uh, on a pedestal. Yeah. He had the, the cauldron from Ed Gein. Yeah. Like it was just like, like it's interesting, but also like a part of me was like, why are these things being kept? Right. And why are you charging people to come do them? Because <laughs> he's got to make money. This is true. To pay for his cleansing waters. <laughs> After renting the house, Alvin Weintraub had it demolished in 1994 and constructed a brand new home that began later that same year. In 1996, which is crazy to me that they were able to completely build this 
mega mansion in two years. The home was completed and he named it Villa Bella and obtained a new address for the property, 10066 Celo Drive. The home does not resemble the residence that the murders occurred like at all, and it is an 18,000 square foot Mediterranean style mansion that is ginormous, and you can see it on Zillow. In 1998, Weintraub assured Los Angeles Magazine that this was certainly not the Manson murder house, and he was quoted by saying, we went to great pains to get rid of everything. Yeah. There is no house, no dirt. No blade of grass remotely connected to Sharon Tate. Hmm. The owner of the property as of December 2013 was Hollywood producer Jeff Franklin. In 2010, he had made this comment to Architectural Digest. What I fell in love with here was the setting, the view, the privacy, and the amount of flat land. But he complained that the design of the house was badly conceived. I'm sure. (laughs) The property was on the market in August 2019. It was again on the market in January 2022 for $85 million, but was reduced in price in June 2022 to just under $70 million. And then not even a week ago, it was removed. From the market. From the market. So maybe somebody bought it. Maybe they decided not to sell. Uh, yeah, usually if it's removed, they just couldn't sell it. It was... I mean, honestly, like if you look at the Zillow, the pricing, it was, oh my gosh, listed for rent, they changed the price, listing removed, listed for rent, listed for sale, price change, listing removed, listed for sale, listing removed, like they're having a hard time (laughs) getting their hands off this house. Yeah. So, and I think, so with David Omen's house, here's what I think happened because I don't think David Oman's house is the same house that Holly owns the one the big mansion Mm -hmm. I think what happened is one of these real estate people Mm -hmm. when they bought like parceled out the property Mm -hmm. because after it was torn down after he tore it down I think that he sold part of his property Mm -hmm. because David Oman's house is literally like right up against the house that they rebuilt on actual the actual address so like they're their neighbors, and that's, that's how they what, were able to get a address changed. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I I think is happening is that the house that is actually on the original one zero zero five zero Celo Drive that they rebuilt and they say that they raised it, like everything, mm-hmm. which I think is very smart, um, is not the same as the house that. David has like literally not even like a hundred feet away. Mm-hmm. And I think since he, he thinks that's like technically the property and he didn't raise everything, like get rid of all the dirt and change everything completely. I think that's why he's claiming that his house is like Sharon Tate's ghost hangout spot mm-hmm. because it's the same property that everything happened on. And he has clearly embraced it where the other owners have, not so you have like this dual house sort of situation yeah, like going a on split property type thing yeah which i think that we just kind of um touched on with uh the other serial killer house fox farms because mm-hmm. they kind of did the same thing they parceled out the um property and you know 
some of it's haunted and then some people are like farming on it and saying like there's nothing there until they find the bodies that are buried but that's a that's a different (laughs) that's a different issue (laughs) um so i think that's what's happening but i totally would believe that the house that they that's for sale on and off wouldn't have anything because it really sounds like they completely tried to remove everything. Um, whereas David Oman's house, I'm not saying that he intentionally kind of like tried to shrine up this place, but it's very clear that he's very welcoming mm-hmm. to that sort of energy. I think those EVPs were pretty compelling. I think that, yeah, definitely. Uh, there has to be something like even if it's just like because you know like that is such a traumatizing event yeah definitely and i mean the earth and land i mean does hold on to that certain thing maybe that rock is quartz maybe it's that ghost (laughs) that ghost rock that we've talked about a couple times yeah that holds on it's like what it is essentially becomes like a video recorder right and so i could totally see see that energy kind of coming to play um, like it's not necessarily a a ghost but more just like a moment repeating itself yeah residual sort of energy and i and and also i even though it's residual it's not i don't think it's really intelligent you get what you feed into it Mm -hmm. and if you are inviting investigators in on a regular and you are feeding into it you're gonna get something back in my opinion so just gotta be careful with that shit you do it's also been really interesting to see like you know young hollywood starlets like just beginning their careers Mm -hmm. with gene and with sharon both having things tragically happen to them and their connection there's just like their weird connection i don't think that like Jean Harlow's house is cursed and that's why things happen to Sharon Tate and her friends. Um, I just think it's very. Yeah. I don't, I feel like that was just a coincidence. Yeah. It's just a weird connection to make. And there was weird shit going on in the thirties, forties and fifties in Hollywood anyway. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that Jean, I mean, Jean Harlow died fairly young. Oh, did she? Uh, she died. I want to say not even like 10 years after her husband died of like a kidney issue. I think that's what I read. Yes. She died five years after. Yeah, only 26. Only 26. Um, I think there was a rumor that her uremic poisoning, her kidney failure, was due to rumors of like burn abusing her. Um, but I don't think that was ever confirmed. They were only married two months. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess that they could have like been together. Anything can happen, that, yeah. but still. Um, but both, you know, both of them were like up and coming movie stars. They were just kind of starting their careers. They both died young. It's just a very weird parallel. And I don't think that there's anything like supernatural or cosmic about it. I just think it's just, you know. It kind of paints a story, too, of, like, young women in Hollywood Mm -hmm. in that span of time from, like, the 30s to the 60s and how they were, you know, treated sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, very interesting. I think that, you know, at least some part of the property could be haunted. I think it's completely plausible. Oh, yeah. 
Charles Manson can rot in hell. Man. I think that he is dead. <laughs> he is dead. Um, and you know what? I'm hoping he gets the afterlife he deserves. <laughs> um, and yeah. Well, great job. Yeah, I think that was good. I hope everybody liked it. I think the next time we're bouncing back to the opposite side of the coast and uh, talking about somewhere in Massachusetts. I'm glad you knew because I didn't. <laughs> I looked it up beforehand. So. <laughs> um, so, yeah. What's your stage moment? <laughs> um, my stage moment, I went to that wonderful gala again. Yes. Last night. It was a Looked good time. Beautiful. Thank you. Very beautiful. It was a good time. It's a great cause. It's just nice to get dressed up sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's even better for it that it's like for a cause that I'm passionate about. So it was a good time. Yeah. And she brought us back a goodie bag. Yeah. My husband broke her yo-yo. I'm very <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it was circus themed. So we got like little goodie bags of weird ass caramel popcorn and really shitty cotton candy. Yeah. And then a very cheap yo-yo. But it did come with a Chick-fil-A free and that's all you need. And that's honestly the most valuable thing in that whole box. Exactly. exactly. The popcorn box is cute, though. You could put a little popcorn in there when you're wanting a little movie night. I don't know. Yeah, that shit's just going to go with a garbage can. I'll keep mine. I'm like so in a purge mood. Like, no clutter. I can feel that. Um, but yeah, you look great. And I'm glad that you had a fun time. Thanks. And also, you know. I got to see my best friend this weekend, so that's also an added bonus. Always. <laughs> um, my stage moment is, it could have been Las Vegas, which was great. I, I already talked about that we had a great time. Um, but uh, if you follow me on my personal Instagram, I made an announcement, and now I can share it on all platforms, <laughs> is that I am pregnant. I am due in October. I'm a Libra having a Libra (laughs) and it's early days, but I'm very happy. (laughs) Uh, I don't think that we've really discussed. We've touched on our shared Mm -hmm. health issues with endometriosis and it it did take a little while to get here, but yeah, I am, I am pregnant. So if I start complaining about being sick, (laughs) you you know why you're doing great. I am. I'm. I'm trying to hang in there. I've had a few <laughs> rough weeks of nausea and just building a baby just fucking tires you out. No kidding. <laughs> it's so, a lot of work. So you know, but I'll share things here and there as the weeks go on. But right now, all I can say is I'm pregnant. Woohoo! <laughs> um, so exciting. Yeah, you're just super, super stoked about it. I am very, very happy. Cautiously happy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's like still like surreal, but also like every time I think about it, I'm like, oh. I know. <laughs> I know. It's weird to walk around and then like be like, oh, wait. There's a thing in me. <laughs> There's something inside. <laughs> I can say that I am officially in the week where it transitions from an embryo to a fetus. So that's interesting. The apps kind of keep me in, in place. I always think back to that part in Juno 
she's like, it has fingernails. It's like fingernails? Right. <laughs> what? It has all the things. Yeah. And it'll it'll soon have the sense of hearing, so it'll listen to to us to this podcast every <laughs> week. <laughs> it'll be all up on the haunted things. Bring up right a little boo baby. <laughs> um, but yeah. Well, it's all exciting. It is. And I guess we'll talk to you all next week. Yeah, we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. As always, we love getting suggestions from you guys. Be sure to send us your recommendations of stories to cover, locations to visit, ghost tours to go on, and all that good stuff. You can send it to hauntedorhoaxpod at gmail.com or DM us on social. Yeah, you can find all of our links to social as well as episodes and blogs on our website, hauntedorhoax.com. And if you feel like helping us out, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or just drop us a few stars on Spotify. Bye. Bye. Bye.